All right, if you would please uh, turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 29. Some of you got it, there is no Acts 29. I thought about entitling the message Acts 29 for reasons that I'll explain later. Um, However, we have uh, entitled this message Review and Adieu. Uh, We're going to review the book of Acts, some of its main objectives and themes, and bid adieu to it, bid goodbye to it for a time at least, um, as we come to a conclusion. So this is kind of a a summary uh, message on the book of Acts, and uh, as I said, I want to wrap up our study in the book and briefly review some of the most important themes and objectives that we've seen in the book. Remember that Acts is volume two of a two-part work written by its author, which the nearly unanimous testimony of the early church affirms was Luke, and this second book is a sequel of sorts, and this becomes evident when we compare the opening of the book of Acts with the opening of the Gospel of Luke. You recall that in the very first uh, verse of uh, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1, and my remote is not working here, well, so be it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And one of the reasons why we recognize this as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke is because the Gospel of Luke opens with a mention of this same Theophilus. Um, And, of course, the very fact that... um, Luke, or the author here, says that this is the second um, <coughs> account um, is, is uh, uh, indicative of the fact that it's a sequel to the gospel. Now, one of the things that we've talked about before, and I think it bears uh, repeating and bears keeping in mind as we read the different gospels, is that each of the gospels um, deals with or presents Jesus in uh, under a unique perspective to the gospel writer. For instance, in the gospel of Matthew, as we've seen before, Matthew presents Jesus as the king of Israel or the king of the Jews. Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, includes the parables of the kingdom. And Matthew takes great pains to point out how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament, speaking of a coming son of David who would take the throne of Israel. And so Matthew's purpose is to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies. He is the king of Israel. Mark presents Jesus as the servant of the Lord. Mark, as a gospel, records uh, fewer of the actual words of Jesus. If you look through the different gospels, you'll see a lot, and you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you'll see a lot less read comparatively than you would find in the other gospels. Mark focuses on the works of Jesus. Obviously, he has some of the teaching of Jesus as well, but when you read Mark, you find one of the words that he repeats over and over again is this word, immediately. Uh, As soon as one thing is done, immediately Jesus goes here, or immediately Jesus goes there, or immediately he does this work or that work. He is the servant of the Lord. He's actively um, listening to the voice of the Father and performing the work that he has called him to do. Uh, John presents Jesus as the Son of God come down from heaven. And it's a beautiful uh, image and uh, beautiful gospel as it focuses on the heavenly origin of Jesus coming down from heaven and ministering among men. Luke presents Jesus as the man for all men, the man for all men, or as some uh, commentators have said, the universal man. 
And this theme emerges in a variety of ways as you read through the Gospel of Luke, one of which is the fact that he traces our Lord's genealogy all the way back, not merely to to Abraham like Matthew does. Remember, Matthew is presenting uh, Jesus as the king of Israel. He's focusing on him as being uh, the, the king of the Jews. But Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the first man, the father of the human race. And this is one of the ways in which he's emphasizing that Jesus is the man for all men. And uh, we see that, that Luke emphasizes the ministry, Jesus' ministry to those who are not exactly at the center of Jewish society, namely the religiously observant Jewish male. But rather, Luke takes more frequent notice than Matthew, Mark, or John of Jesus' ministry to those who are on the periphery of society. He's constantly talking about Jesus' ministry to the poor and Jesus' teaching about the need to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan. Uh, It speaks of uh, those who are sick far more than some of the other gospel writers do. So those who are on the periphery of society. And this theme continues, or perhaps it would be better to say that it accelerates in Acts. Once we transition from the gospel uh, to the book of Acts, we find this theme of Jesus being the man for all men or the savior of all men. Uh, We find uh, the, the gospel being preached and being accepted by an ever-widening circle of people in the book of Acts. Um, and, and, but not only in terms of geography, but also ethnically and religiously as well. A convenient way of expressing this is that the gospel goes from full Jew to half Jew to non-Jew. But there are a number of subdivisions that we could also note. Among the Jews, we can identify those who are called the Hebrews and those who are called the Hellenists. The Hebrews were Jews who did everything in their power to maintain their distinctively Jewish identity. They spoke Hebrew um, as as they could probably speak other languages as well, probably Greek. Uh, But the Hebrew of the day, that was their intention, is to maintain their Hebrew heritage. And they would uh, dress in a traditional Hebrew way and think like a Hebrew. Uh, But the Hellenists, on the other hand, would uh, adopt, they were the ones who adopted various elements of Uh, Greek culture, the word Hellenist, uh, means Greek. And so they adopted the Greek language, Greek culture, Greek clothing, to some degree even Greek philosophy. And there was often a conflict between those who were the Hebrews among the Jews and those who were the Hellenists among the Jews. We see that emerging in Acts chapter 6 as well. Then there were uh, two categories of half-Jews as well. They were the Samaritans, whom I mentioned before, uh, who were descendants of intermarriage between the Jews and Gentiles generations earlier before Jesus. And we read about large numbers of Samaritans coming to faith in Christ in Acts chapter 8. But there's another group that we might think of as half-Jews, and these were proselytes. These, who, these were Gentiles by birth. Oh, you're, somebody's... I haven't noticed. Thank you. There's my daughter, Olivia. Fabulous job. Thank you. Okay, so uh, the, the proselytes, these were Gentiles by birth, um, but Jews by religion. In other words, they converted to embrace um, the Jewish faith. So they can be thought of as kind of half-Jews, not, not ethnically like the Samaritans, but in terms of origin and then conversion. And among the non-Jews also, we can distinguish two groups. The first of these were called God-fearers, and these were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel, but had not yet fully embraced Judaism, which is to say they had not yet become proselytes. And we find an example of such a man in Cornelius, the Roman centurion that we read about in Acts chapter 10. 
And then finally, there were Gentiles who, when they first heard and received the gospel, were idolatrous pagans. Uh, These were Gentiles who still adhered to their native religion, but by the grace of God, they heard the word of truth, and they were brought to faith in Christ. And we find the first example of this, or at least uh, in terms of a focused effort to reach them in large numbers, in chapter 14 of Acts. And so again, the movement in general is from those whose origin is most ethnically, religiously, and culturally close to the center, that is, of the center of historic Judaism, to those who were less so. That's the movement and the sweep of the book. Uh, there are exceptions along the way, of course, but the growth of the church, both, both in its actual history and in the way that Luke structures his narrative, is from native Jew to pagan Gentile. Now, a simplified form of this is indicated in the commission that Jesus gave the apostles at the outset. Remember Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is expressing geographically what is taking place ethnically and religiously as well. Movement from the center outward. Now, it's interesting that the chronicle of this movement should be written by a man such as Luke. Why do I say this? Because he was himself a Gentile. Luke was a Gentile, and this is rather, he's rather unique in this because he is the only Gentile who wrote a book of the Bible. Think of all of the authors of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. Uh, none was a Gentile except for Luke. And you might ask, well, how do we know that he was a Gentile? Because in his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul mentions three men and says these are the only men from among the circumcision or from the Jews who are with me. And then he goes on to mention a few other men, including Luke, the beloved physician, who was with him. So if he's with Paul, but he's not included in the number who were the only ones who were Jews with him, then he must have been a Gentile. And so this gives him a rather unique perspective. And you think of all of the people that God could have gotten to write uh, the message of the book of Acts, where this movement goes from the historic center of Judaism outward to pagan Gentile. It's very appropriate, it seems to me, that he would get a Gentile to write this book. So this makes him rather unique in that regard. Now, the book, as you know, is usually referred to simply as Acts. That's how we typically refer to it. But this is actually an abbreviated form of its formal name, which is the Acts of the Apostles. Of course, you understand that Luke didn't give this name to the book, but this is the name by which it's uh, come to be known. Uh, Irenaeus, an early church father, is the first recorded person to have uh, referred to the book as the Acts of the Apostles, and that name has stuck ever since. Uh, The name is indicative of the subject matter, although it's a bit misleading because there's very little information given about any of the apostles except for Peter and Paul. And Paul was um, not even one of the original 12. And so really it might be appropriate to look for a different title. Uh, Some have suggested, because of the role played by the Holy Spirit, that the book should be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. I think there's some merit to this idea because clearly the Holy Spirit plays a very prominent role in the book. But I would suggest that the book might best be called The Continuing Acts of Jesus Christ um, or The Ongoing Ministry of Christ. Now, why do I say this? Because in it we find Jesus continuing the ministry that he began while he was on earth. 
And this certainly seems to be how Luke himself conceived of the relationship between his gospel and the book that we call Acts, that it's a continuing narrative of the activity or the ministry of Jesus Christ. Again, I refer you to the opening lines of the book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now notice that little word, began. Um, We do have it on the slide. There we go. Okay. Began. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Doesn't that suggest that Luke conceives of the writing that he's about to give us? Um, In his mind, at least, is a narrative of what Jesus continued to do. The ongoing ministry of Christ after he's gone to heaven. Um, I think that clearly is the implication of it. It's important, I think, for us to remember that Jesus' ministry didn't end with his ascension. Uh, We see this in the miracles that he worked through the ministry of the apostles. On one occasion, Peter testified before the council when he said, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you healed. By him. Even though it was the apostles who spoke to the crippled man, saying in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, and people might think, well, it was Peter and John who healed the man. Peter himself testifies and said, it is by him, it is by Jesus. Jesus performed this work. The, the act is viewed or is conceived of Christ working through the hands of the apostles. And this is not the only time we read of this. In chapter 9, Peter is in another city, and it says, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Notice where he, uh, how he attributes the, the, the miracle, or to whom he attributes the miracle. Not to his own power, he doesn't have this power, but Christ was pleased to work through Peter. And so Peter says, it's Jesus who heals you. Jesus is continuing to work, he's continuing to minister. So all the acts of healing performed by the apostles were really the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he was pleased to perform through them. And this was in accord with the promise that Jesus gave to his apostles on the night before he suffered. In John chapter 14, he said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So when the apostles spoke in the name of Jesus Christ and commanded the sick to be well, the lame to walk, it was Jesus who was performing the work. He's not sitting idle in heaven, awaiting the second coming. Jesus continues to work, just like he did in the days, not entirely just like, but in ways very similar to uh, when he was walking the earth in the first century. But it's not just an acts of healing that Jesus continues his work. He also was the one who poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Peter makes this point when he says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, Jesus is the antecedent of the pronoun, he, Jesus, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus is the the one who poured out the Holy Spirit in accordance with uh, what John the Baptist had said. Remember, in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John the Baptist said, I have baptized you with water, but he, the one coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, he, he says, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, after he goes back to heaven, is healing people through the hands of the apostles. He, after he's gone back to heaven, pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, upon those who are in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Uh, But even more than this, uh, Luke indicates that it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who brings people to faith when the gospel is being preached. In chapter 16, Luke tells us of an incident that happens in the city of Philippi. He says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is an act of the Lord Jesus Christ to open people's hearts, to give attention to the gospel, to bring them to faith. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have come to faith in him, know that it was the Lord Jesus who opened your heart to make you uh, open to, to receive the message of the gospel. You have been touched by the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in some, um, not as a figure of speech, but in reality. Jesus Christ is the one who has opened your heart and your mind to to, to understand, to desire, and to respond to the message of the gospel. So Jesus continued to act. He continued to work even after his ascension. Uh, The ministry of the apostles was really the ministry of Jesus Christ who was pleased to act through them, even as he said before before he ascended. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So instead of being called the Acts of the Apostles, this book could just as easily be called the Continuing Acts of Jesus Christ or the Ongoing Ministry of Christ. Again, we must understand that Jesus does not sit idle in heaven, uh, just twiddling his thumbs until the Father gives him the indication, okay, now it's time for the second coming. Now, Jesus is active. Sometimes we read the the saying in Scripture that Jesus took his seat at the right hand of God the Father. Um, And we think that this is a posture of inactivity, but in reality it's a posture of reigning as a king. He's seated upon a throne. He is actively pursuing the ends for which he came in bringing the nations of the earth to the obedience of faith. And indeed this is a very encouraging thing because it would be utterly discouraging to think that the ministry that he has called us to, the task that he has called us to, to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth and to bring the nations to the obedience of faith. It would be utterly discouraging to think that this depended upon our own strength or our own ingenuity. He simply asks us to be obedient, to give voice to the gospel and to live out the gospel and in so doing bear witness to Christ. And then from that point, it's in the Lord's hands. And he will do as he pleases, opening hearts 
healing the sick if he so chooses, doing whatever he pleases to make himself known to individuals. So this is, I think, a very important point for us. And a part of why I suggested we might have called this message Acts 29, because we come to the book, end of the book of Acts, and maybe we think that the activity of Christ is done. It's over, right? We come to the end of the historical story of the New, early New Testament church, but that is not by any means to imply that Christ has ceased his activity. He continues to minister in and through the church, and thank God for that. Now, the last two verses of Acts read that Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, the two years that are mentioned here that he was in Rome were the years AD 60 to 62, as best as we can determine. Uh, When it says that he lived there during this time at his own expense, Uh, And in verse 23, where it spoke of his lodging place, we gather that even though he was in the custody of the Roman authorities, he was not in some dungeon, but rather under some kind of house arrest. He was living in his own expense at a place that was called his lodging. Um, And although this prevented him from traveling abroad, he was not prevented from receiving visitors. It says, he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness And without hindrance. Now, it was also during this time that he wrote what are called the prison epistles, um, even though he wasn't actually in a literal prison. What epistles are these? Well, they're Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, uh, some of the most precious treasures of the church, especially you think of the book of Ephesians, which we expounded not too long ago. What a magnificent book that speaks of the glory of Jesus Christ and the greatness of our redemption in him. Uh, Paul wrote these four books, again, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and during this two-year period. So even though Paul was in the custody of the Romans, he was not just being idle, doing nothing, waiting for his release. He took whatever opportunity he had in his limited circumstances in order to continue to preach and teach about Jesus, welcoming apparently vast numbers of people to his lodging, And probably, in the providence of God, this also served to protect him, that he was under custody of the Romans, and thought about that till just now. Uh, But you think about it, if he's under the custody of the Roman uh, Roman authorities, who would dare to do him any harm? Uh, So it probably served to his advantage in terms of protecting uh, him during this time. So he welcomes all who comes to him, he's preaching, he's teaching about Jesus, and at the same time, He is writing these four epistles that have become very precious to the church. Now, the fact that Luke ends his narrative at this point suggests that this is when he completed the book. And I mention this because liberal scholarship places the dating of the book of Acts to sometime after the apostolic period, and even indeed into um, several decades, perhaps even into the second century. Um, But it's hardly conceivable, if this were true, that the author would stop at this point. I mean, why would the author not go on to say what happened to Paul after this two-year period? Now, it seems to me that Luke finished writing the book and sent it off to Theophilus in A.D. 62, just at the end of this two-year period. And he didn't write anymore because he brought it up to the present. He brought the narrative up to the present moment. But we we might want to ask, what did happen to Paul after this two-year period? 
We have been following for some months now the ministry of Paul and his various missionary journeys. We've we've taken an in-depth look at his uh, voyage to Rome and the shipwreck and the things that he suffered. And during this time, it's like we get to know a little something about Paul, the man. And it's only natural, I think, for us to wonder, well, what what became of him after this period? The the, uh, Bible doesn't give us a clear indication, but we do have uh, some hints along the way from some of his subsequent letters, uh, which would be the pastoral letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And then also from some early church, histor- early church writers after the apostolic period who reference a few things about him. Um, an early church historian by the name of Eusebius refers to a tradition that Paul was set free after two years and resumed his itinerant ministry. That he revisited some of the churches that he established around the Aegean. Um, we also know from uh, his, his writing of uh, Titus that he made a visit to the island of Crete. And that's not mentioned in the book of Acts. It must have happened after uh, what's, what's recorded in the book of Acts. Um, and uh, we also discover from early church history that he went as far west as Spain. Uh, you might recall that in his letter to the Romans, which he wrote a few years before he arrived there, Paul indicated a desire to go and preach the gospel in Spain. He said, I hope to see you who are in Rome, to see you in passing As I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, he didn't know exactly how he would get to Rome, but as it turns out, he got to Rome as a prisoner. Um, But he spent two years there, and then apparently after his release, he did make it to Spain because we read something very interesting in one of the earliest Christian documents after the New Testament, a letter from a man by the name of Clement a leader in the church of Rome, who was writing a letter to the church at Corinth, helping to settle some of the division that was taking place within that church. And you might remember from what Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, that there was a great deal of division already at that time, in Paul's day. Some of you are saying, I am of Apollos. Some of you are saying, I am of Cephas. Others are saying, I am of Christ. I follow all these different things. And there's division. And Paul tried to bring some order and peace between them. Well, 30 years later, AD 95, roughly, well, that would be 40 years later, uh, Clement, a leader in the Church of Rome, is writing to the church, and he's trying to, again, bring some peace in the church. But in so doing, he mentions Paul, and he says that Paul was preaching everywhere and made it to the furthest limits of the West, the furthest limits of the West. And if you look at a map of the Roman Empire, The furthest limit to the west is Spain. And so there is good reason to believe that Paul had his wish fulfilled, uh, that he made it to Spain. Further traditions relate that Paul made another visit to Rome, a second visit to Rome, sometime after the great fire in A.D. 64, a fire that just devastated the city of Rome. It was said that Nero secretly gave the order to set fire to the city because he wanted to rebuild it on a grander scale and rename the city Neropolis. It's uh, amazing how many world leaders have such a huge ego. You know, Alexander the Great. There were dozens of cities in the ancient world that were named after Alexander. Um, Few that survived. Uh, Alexandria in Egypt became a major Uh, city um, and was still named Alexandria um, in the first century. 
But Nero had such a huge ego and such disdain for the Roman masses, the squalor of those who lived in the poorer sections of the city, that it is said by credible historians of the period, Tacitus, Suetonius, and others, that Nero set fire to the city in order to devastate it so he had an opportunity to rebuild it on a bigger, grander scale, more beautiful scale, and then rename the city after himself. Well, the rumor got out, the suspicion got out that it was in fact Nero who gave the order for the city to be burned. And in order to deflect blame and the consequences for this from himself, he blamed it on the Christians. Um, And thus began the beastly persecution of the church, which lasted for 42 months or three and a half years, in which many, many believers perished. Tacitus, the Roman historian, gives us a brief account of it. He says, heaven could not stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order of Nero. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted his culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd called Christians. Now, many of the early pagan writers had a very dim view of Christianity and of Christians. There were many uh, false rumors uh, that they were cannibals, for instance, because they gathered together in secret places and they ate the body of somebody. Um, They were accused of incest because they would call um, one another brother and sister. Even a man would refer to his wife as a sister, sister in the Lord. And, of course, they misunderstood this. And because they kept separate from the public um, uh, gatherings for the worship of various pagan deities, they were thought to hate the rest of the human race. You know, they're such despicable people they can't even intermingle with us. They have such a high opinion of themselves. There were a lot of reasons why, uh, mostly misconceptions, um, as to why Christians were, um, as, as Tacitus says here, loathed for their vices. And so Tacitus says he pinned the blame on those who were called Christians. First then, he goes on to say, the confessed members of this sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race, because they keep aloof from the pagan practices and public festivals. And derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs. He's talking about the public displays in the arena, in the various ways, the exquisite tortures, of cru- the, uh, cruel tortures that he mentions earlier. He found inventive ways to have them killed. And he would especially do this with the children, we read from another account, dress them in animal skins and put them out in the arena while their parents watched. Watch their children being torn and eaten by dogs. He goes on to say, they were fastened on crosses And when daylight failed, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the dress of a charioteer, sometimes mounted on his chariot. Hence, in spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, in other words, the Christians, because of their hatred of the human race, because of all their uh, sinful practices, supposedly, um, they deserved punishment, he says... Nevertheless, there arose a sentiment of pity 
due to the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. So this period of persecution takes place over a period of three years. At some time during this period, Paul makes his return to Rome, no doubt to help provide some pastoral leadership, encouragement to inspire the faithful who are still there. And so while he's there, he's apprehended a second time. And during this second imprisonment, he wrote 2 Timothy, his last letter. And his expectations in 2 Timothy are quite different than what we find in his earlier letters when he's first in custody of the Romans in the city of Rome. Uh, For example, in Philippians, uh, during his house arrest in Rome, he has an expectation of being released. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. All right, so he's convinced that it's the Lord's will that he remain in this world, that he remain living. And a little later he says, I hope to send Timothy just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He has a hopeful expectation of his release. And in his letter to Philemon, written at about the same time, he says, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So again, all the indications from the earlier, what are called prison epistles, all the indications are that he's expecting release. And we find from church history that that's what the church fathers testified as well. But in 2 Timothy, he describes himself in a quite different way. He describes himself as a prisoner suffering for the gospel, bound with chains as a criminal. And he also says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Inspiring words by a man who was, was so selfless and so utterly devoted to serving the Lord, and no doubt weary with all of his labor, and he is ready to go. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So none of what we've just read describes the situation during his house arrest in Acts 28. This is a second imprisonment, and we might call it a real imprisonment, as in actually in prison, not house arrest. And he knows he's about to be killed for the sake of his Lord. And tradition says that because he was a Roman citizen, he was beheaded rather than tortured to death like many of the other Christians were, because this was one of the rights as a Roman citizen. If you had committed a crime worthy of death, you had a merciful beheading. It was quick, it was relatively painless, it was because it happened so quickly, and you were not tortured. In fact, it was against the law to crucify a Roman citizen. So, Paul uh, gives us his last testimony, his last words in 2 Timothy. But it's interesting, he even makes the statement there that though he is bound, yet the word of God is not bound. Um, again, it's uh, an extraordinary thing that Paul uh, does in his ministry and the hope and the uh, expectation that he has of the success of the gospel. So the word of God was not bound and it did not cease to be proclaimed with the death of Paul or even with the death of the last apostle, who we believe was the apostle John. The church throughout the ages has continued the work, has continued to preach the gospel and by grace to lead many to faith and salvation. And this is our task yet today. 
to do the same kinds of things that the early church did to make Christ known. We don't have the calling, uh, the office of apostle, uh, but we are Christ's people. And so in our limited sphere of influence, but always seeking more influence to make Christ known, let's be faithful to that task. Amen.